0: Slack leaks, naughty GitHub code, and post-quantum cryptography, all that, and much more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today? Super duper as usual, Doug. I am super duper excited to get to this week's tech history segment because you were there, man. This week... On August 11th. Oh no!
1: Oh uh, yes, yeah. I think the pen. Yeah, I don't just even have dropped. to say the year.
0: August 11th, 2003. The world took notice of the Blaster worm, affecting Windows 2000 and Windows XP systems. Blaster, also known as LoveSan and MS Blast, exploited a buffer overflow and is perhaps best known for the message: "Billy Gates, why do you make this possible? Stop making money and fix your software." What happened, Paul?
1: Well, it was the era before perhaps we took security quite so seriously. And fortunately, that kind of bug would be much, much, much more difficult to exploit these days. It was a stack-based buffer overflow. And if I remember correctly, the server versions of Windows were already being built with what's called stack protection in. In other words, if you overflow the stack inside a function then before the function returns and does the damage with the corrupted stack it will detect that something bad has happened so it has to shut down the offending program but the malware doesn't get to run but that protection was not in the client versions of Windows at that time and as I remember it was one of those early malwares that kind of had to guess which version of the operating system you had are you on 2000 are you on NT are you on XP and if it got it wrong then an important part of the system would crash and you get the, your system is about to shut down warning. Huh. So there was all those. that collateral damage that was for many people the sign that you were getting hammered by infections, which could be from outside, like if you're just a home user and you didn't have a, a router or a firewall at home. Uh, but if you were inside a company, the most likely attack was going to come from someone else inside the company just spewing packets on your network. So very much like the Code Red attack we spoke about, uh, which was a couple of years before that in a recent podcast, it was really the sheer scale, volume, and speed of this thing that was the problem.
0: All right. Well, that was uh, about 20 years ago. And if we turn back the clock to almost five years ago,
1: uh, that's when Slack
0: (laughs) started leaking hash passwords.
1: Yeah, Slack, the popular collaboration tool, It has a feature where you can send an invitation link to other people to join your workspace. And you imagine, you know, you click a button that says generate a link, it'll create some kind of network packet, probably has some JSON inside it. If you've ever had a Zoom meeting invitation, you'll know that it has a date and a time and the person who's inviting you and a URL you can use for the meeting and a passcode and all that stuff. It has quite a lot of data in there, and normally, you don't dig into the raw data to see what's in there. The client just says, "Hey, here's a meeting. here are the details Do you want to accept, maybe decline." It turned out that when you did this with Slack, as you say, for more than five years, packaged up in that invitation was extraneous data not strictly relevant to the invitation itself. So not a URL, not a name, not a date, not a time. but The inviting user's password hash. Hmm. I kid you not. (laughs) Seems bad. Yeah, yeah, it really does, doesn't it? The bad news is how on earth did that get in there? And once it was in there, how on earth did it evade notice for five years and three months? In fact, if you visit the article on Naked Security and look at the URL (laughs) of the full URL of the article... You'll notice it says at the end, blah, 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 for three months. Because when I first read the report, my mind didn't want to see it as 27, (laughs) because it was the 17th of April to the 17th of July. And Mm -hmm. so there are lots of 17s in there. And my mind blanked out the 2017 as the starting year. I, I misread it as April to July of this year. I thought, wow, three months. And they didn't notice. And then the first comment on the article was, uh, <clears throat> it was actually the 17th of April, 2017. <laughs> wow. But somebody figured it out on the 17th of July and Slack, to their credit, fixed it the same day. Like, oh golly, what were we thinking? So that's the bad news. The good news is at least it was hashed passwords and they weren't just hashed, they were salted, which is where you mix in Uniquely chosen per user random data with the password, the idea being twofold. One, if two people choose the same password, they don't get the same hash. So you can't make any inferences by looking through the hash database. And two, you can't pre-compute a dictionary of known hashes for known inputs. Because you have to create a separate dictionary for each password for each salt. So it's not a trivial exercise to crack hashed passwords. Having said that, the whole idea is that they are not supposed to be a matter of public record. They're hashed and salted in case they leak, not in order that they can leak. (laughs) So egg on Slack's face. Slack say that about 1 in 200 users, 0.5%, were affected. But if you're a Slack user, I would assume that if they didn't realize they were leaking hashed passwords for five years, maybe they didn't quite enumerate the list of people who are affected completely either. And go and change your password anyway. Might as well.
0: Okay. We also say uh, you're not using a password manager. Consider getting one. Turn on 2FA if you can. I thought you'd like that, Doug. (laughs) Yep, I do. And then if, uh, if you are Slack or a company like it, choose a reputable salt hash and stretch algorithm when handling passwords yourself.
1: That's yes, the and the big deal in Slack's response and the thing that I thought was lacking is that they just said, oh, don't worry. Not only did we hash the passwords, we salted them as well. My advice is that if you are caught in a breach like this, then you should be willing to declare the algorithm or process you used for salting and hashing And also, ideally, what's called stretching, which is where you don't just hash the salted password once, but perhaps you hash it 100,000 times to slow down any kind of dictionary or brute force attack. And if you state what algorithm you are using and with what parameters, for example, pbkdf2, bcrypt, scrypt, argon2, those are the best-known password salt hash stretch algorithms out there, if you actually state what algorithm you're using, then A, you're being more open, and B, you're giving potential victims of the problem a chance to assess for themselves how dangerous they think this might have been. And that sort of openness can actually help a lot. Slack didn't do that. They just said, oh, they were salted and hashed. But what we don't know is, you know, did they put in two bites of salt and then hash them once with SHA-1? Or did they have something a little more resistant to being cracked.
0: Sticking to the subject of bad things, we're noticing a trend developing where people are injecting bad stuff into GitHub just to see what happens, exposing risk, and we got another one of those stories.
1: Yes, somebody who now has allegedly come out on Twitter and said, oh, don't worry, guys, no harm done. It was just for research. I'm going to write a report. Stand out from Blue Alert. They created literally thousands of bogus github projects based on copying existing legit code deliberately inserting some malware commands in there such as call home for further instructions interpret the body of the reply as backdoor code to execute and so on so stuff that really could do harm if you installed one of these packages giving them legit looking names borrowing apparently the commit history of a genuine project so that the thing looked much more legit than you might otherwise expect if it just showed up with hey download this file you know you want to Mm -hmm. really research Mm -hmm. we didn't know this already now you can argue well microsoft that owned github what are they doing making it so easy for people to upload this kind of stuff and There's some truth to that. Maybe they could do a better job of keeping malware out in the first place. It's going a little bit over the top to say, oh, well, it's all Microsoft's fault. But it's even worse, in my opinion, to say, yeah, this is genuine research. This is really important. We've, We've got to remind people that this could happen. Well, A, we already know that, thank you very much, because loads of people have done this before. We've got the message loud and clear. And B, this isn't research. This is deliberately trying to trick people into downloading code that gives a potential attacker remote control in return for the ability to write a report. That sounds more like a big fat excuse to me than a legitimate motivator for research. And so my recommendation is if you think this is research and if you're determined to do something like this all over again, Don't expect a whole lot of sympathy if you get caught.
0: All right, we will return to this uh, in the reader comment at the end of the show, so stick around. But first, let us talk about traffic lights and what they have to do with cybersecurity.
1: Ah, yes. (laughs) Well, there's a thing called TLP, the Traffic Light Protocol. And the TLP is what you might call a human Cybersecurity research protocol that helps you label documents that you send to other people to give them a hint of what you hope they will, and more importantly, what you hope they will not do with the data. In particular, how widely are they supposed to redistribute it? Is this something that's so important that you could declare it to the world, or is this potentially dangerous or potentially includes some. Stuff that we don't want to be public just yet, so keep it to yourself. And it started off with TLP Red, which meant keep it to yourself. TLP Amber, which meant you can circulate it inside your own company or to customers of yours that you think might urgently need to know this. TLP Green, which meant, okay, you can let this circulate widely within the cybersecurity community. And TLP White, which meant you can tell anybody. Very, very useful. Very, very simple. Red, amber, green. A metaphor that works globally without worrying about oh, what's the difference between secret and confidential and what's the difference between confidential and classified and all of that complicated stuff that needs a whole lot of laws around it. Well, that TLP just got some modifications. So if you are into cybersecurity research, make sure you're aware of those. TLP White has been changed to what I consider a much better term. Actually, you know, because firstly, well, white has all these unnecessary cultural overturns that we can do without in the modern era. So TLP white has just become TLP colon clear, which to my mind is a much better word because it says you're clear to use this data, and that intention is stated very clearly. Sorry, I couldn't resist the pun. And there's an additional layer, so. It has spoiled the metaphor a bit. There's, it's now a five-color traffic light. There's a special level called TLP colon Amber plus Strict. And what that means is you can share this inside your company. So you know, you might be invited to a meeting, maybe you work for a cybersecurity company, and it's quite clear that you will need to show this to programmers, maybe to your own IT team, maybe to your own quality assurance people, so you can you know, do research into the problem or deal with fixing it. But amber strict means although you can circulate it inside your organisation, please don't tell your clients or your customers or even people that you think outside the company that might have a need to know. Keep it within the tighter community to start with. Amber, like before, means, yeah, okay, if you feel you need to tell your customers, you can. And that can be important because sometimes you might want to inform your customers, hey, we've got this fix coming. You'll need to take some precautionary steps before the fix arrives. But because it's kind of sensitive, may we ask that you don't tell the world just yet. Sometimes telling the world too early actually plays into the hands of the crooks more than it plays into the hands of the defenders. So if you are a cybersecurity responder, I suggest you go to www.first.org forward slash TLP.
0: Okay, and you can read more about that on our site, nakedsecurity.sofos.com. And if you are looking for some other light reading, forget quantum cryptography. We're, we're, we're moving on to post-quantum cryptography, Paul.
1: Yes, we've spoken about this a few times before on the podcast, haven't we? The idea of a quantum computer, assuming a powerful and reliable enough one could be built, certain types of algorithm that could be sped up over the state of the art today, either to the tune of the square root, or even worse, the logarithm of the scale of the problem today. In other words, instead of taking 2 to the power 256 tries to find a file with a particular hash, you might be able to do it in just just 2 to the power 128 tries, which is the square root, clearly a lot faster. But there's a whole class of problems involving factorizing products of prime numbers that the theory says could be cracked in the logarithm of the time that they take today loosely speaking so instead of taking say two to the power 128 days to crack it might take just 128 days to crack or you can replace days with minutes or whatever and unfortunately that logarithmic Time algorithm called Shaw's quantum factorization algorithm that could be, in theory, applied to some of today's cryptographic techniques, notably those used for public key cryptography. And just in case these quantum computing devices do become feasible in the next few years, maybe we should start preparing now for encryption algorithms that are not vulnerable to these two particular classes of attack particularly the logarithm one because it speeds up potential attacks so greatly that cryptographic keys that we currently think well no one will ever figure that out might become revealable at some later stage anyway nist the national institute of standards and technology in the usa has for several years been running a competition to try and standardise some public, unpatented, well-scrutinised algorithms that will be resistant to these magical quantum computers if ever they show up. And recently, they chose four algorithms that they're prepared to standardise upon now. They have cool names, Doug, so I have to read them out. Crystals Kyber, Crystals Dilithium, Falcon, and Sphinx Plus. So they got cool names, if nothing else. But at the same time, they figured, well, that's only four algorithms. What we'll do is we'll pick four more as potential secondary candidates, and we'll see if any of those should go through as well. So there are four standardized algorithms now, and four algorithms which might get standardized in the future, or there were (laughs) uh, on the 5th of July. And one of them, Psyche, that's S-I-K-E, is short for super singular isogeny key encapsulation we'll need several podcasts to (laughs) explain super singular isogenies so we won't bother but unfortunately this one which was hanging in there with a fighting chance of being standardized it looks as though it has been irremediably broken despite at least five years of having been open to public scrutiny already So fortunately, just before it did get or could get standardized, two Belgian cryptographers figured out, you know what, we think we've got a way around this using calculations that take about an hour on a fairly average CPU using just one call. I guess better
0: to to find that out now than uh, standardizing it and getting it out in the wild.
1: Indeed. I guess if it had been one of the algorithms that already got standardized, They'd have to repeal the standard and come up with a new one. It seems weird that this didn't get noticed for five years. I guess that's the whole idea of public scrutiny. You never know when somebody might just hit on the crack that's needed or the little wedge that they can break in and prove that the algorithm is not as strong as was originally thought. A good reminder that if you ever thought of knitting your own cryptography... (laughs) Despite us having told you on the Naked Security podcast n times don't do that, this should be the ultimate reminder that even when true experts put out an algorithm that is subject to public scrutiny in a global competition for five years, still doesn't necessarily provide enough time to expose flaws that turn out to be quite bad. So it's certainly not looking good for this psych algorithm. And who knows, maybe it will be withdrawn.
0: We will keep an eye on that. And as the sun begins to slowly set on our show for this week, it's time to hear from one of our readers on the GitHub story we discussed earlier. Rob writes, there's some chalk and cheese in the comments, and I hate to say it, but I genuinely can see both sides of the argument. Is it dangerous, troublesome, time-wasting, and resource-consuming? Yes, of course it is. Is it what criminally-minded types would do? Yes, yes it is. Is it a reminder to anyone using GitHub or any other code repository system, for that matter, that safely traveling the internet requires a healthy degree of cynicism and paranoia? Yes. As a sysadmin, part of me wants to applaud the exposure of the risk at hand. As a sysadmin to a bunch of developers, I now need to make sure everyone has recently scoured any polls for questionable entries.
1: Yes. Thank you, Rob B., for that comment, because... I guess it's important to see both sides of the argument because there were commenters who were just saying, what the heck's the problem with this? Like, this is great. One person says, no, actually, this pen testing is good and useful. Be glad these are being exposed now instead of rearing their ugly head from an actual attacker. And my response to that is that, well, this is an attack, actually. It's just that somebody's now come out afterwards. Oh, no, no, no harm done. Honestly, I I, I wasn't being naughty. (laughs) Um, I don't think you are obliged to buy that excuse. But this is not penetration testing. My response was to say, very simply, responsible penetration testers only ever act A, after receiving explicit permission, and B, within behavioural limits agreed explicitly in advance. You don't just make up your own rules, and we have discussed this before. So, as another commenter said, which is, I think, my my favourite comment, (laughs) E-Curb said, I think somebody should walk house to house and smash windows to show how ineffective (laughs) door locks really are. This is past due. Someone jump on this, please. And then, (laughs) just in case he didn't realise that's satire, folks, he says, not. (laughs) I get the idea that It's a good reminder, and I get the idea that there are things that if you're a GitHub user, both as a producer and a consumer, there are things you can do. We list them in the comments and in the article. For example, put a digital signature on all your commits so it's obvious that the changes came from you. There's some kind of traceability. and don't just blindly consume stuff because you did a search and it looked like it might be the right project. Yes, we can all learn from this, But does this actually count as teaching us that? Or is that just something we should learn anyway? I think this is not teaching. It's just not of a high enough standard to count as research.
0: Great discussion around this article. And uh, thanks for sending that in, Rob. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay Stay secure. secure.